Do you want to become a better hockey player this summer with Paul Vincent Hockey? Since 1972, Paul Vincent, currently the head skills instructor of the Florida Panthers, has been developing NHL and college hockey players. Paul Vincent stands by his saying, there is always room for player development. Players such as Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Matt Grizzlick, Patrick Sharp, Adam Oates, and many more have trained with Coach Vincent and his staff and have outstanding results. Join Paul Vincent this summer at one of his four Massachusetts locations, Canton, Saugus, Middleton, and Falmouth on Cape Cod. Registration is now open for 2022 camps. To reserve your spot today, go to pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. That's pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. Paul Vincent is ready to get back to work this summer. Are you? Welcome to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast, the podcast for serious hockey players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their hockey careers. And now, here is your host, New England Hockey Journal's Kirk Ludicky. Welcome to another episode of the New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast. I am your host, Kirk Ludicky, and I am joined today by guest host Matt Cater. Matt, welcome. Uh, so glad you could join us here. I appreciate it. Just happy to be here, Kurt. Our guest today is uh, Acton Mass's own Ian Moran, a former uh, NHL defenseman, a Belmont Hill graduate, and all-around uh, hockey uh, evaluator, coach, developer, and a uh, good guy. Uh, Ian, so glad to have you here in studio with us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh you saw you saw you recently in uh, Michigan at yep. uh, Nationals. Had uh, Boston Junior Eagles. Uh, you've been doing a lot of coaching and work with the Boston Junior Eagles. I should have said that right up front in the intro, uh, but we're going to just do this on the fly. But anyway, you were there with two Boston Junior Eagles teams in Rochester, Michigan, the 18s and the 16s. Saw you and uh, your old uh, BC uh, teammate, David Heimovitz. Uh, how, how did that all go uh, in the experience? And even though you guys came up a little short, it had to be a great time for the boys. Yeah, I think the... Uh I think the boys played hard. I think our eight teams, we went out with 11 healthy skaters, uh, two goalies. One of the uh, one of the skaters was Liam O'Keefe, who's an 06, who happened to play enough games in the fall to, to be able to play. I thought the boys played hard. I thought they competed. We tried to get them to play a little bit different system, a little bit more patient. If you think uh, kind of what Northeastern does now with a 1-3-1 to clog up the neutral zone, we tried to get them to do that, which is a total difference from prep school hockey, which is really go, go, go. Uh, I thought the kids bought in really well. I thought they played played hard they were smart uh we actually finished the uh the last game against philly we had nine healthy skaters because we had two guys get hurt give uh more props to liam o'keefe ended up playing with a broken thumb for about a uh a game and a bit so i give him huge props for being tough they did uh the 18s did did well and did about really and truly what we expected and then 16s had a uh had a tough first game against phoenix um there was a kid, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, I think it's like Hempteller or something like that. Hebblethwaite. Hebbleth- Alex Hebblethwaite from uh, Toronto. He actually played he can with... He rip it. He can, and he actually played with Markovic. They were both oh, really? on the Mississauga rip, reps, oh. 05s, and uh, like Markovic, came down to the States uh-huh. after the uh, COVID canceled their season. So a oh. little inside info oh, there. I didn't know that. Well, yeah. that kid can rip it. He scored two two power play goals walking down the side that uh, that were very nice goals. Um 
And then the 16s played well, but they just didn't have any luck with that. The loss to Phoenix kind of knocked them out. But it was it's a good experience for the boys. I thought it was great that Ken Hughes came back. It, the, the Canadians let him come back to be involved. He was as into it as he always is. Had the chalkboard out, had meetings, did uh, exactly what he had always done with that crew of kids. Um, in all, it was a great experience. It's it's interesting because we talked to the 18-year-olds before the last game and you know said to them this is their last game of youth hockey. And from, uh, from this point out, they're going to be playing for coaches we're trying to get to higher levels just like they are. So it's, it's nothing personal. It's if you can help a team win, you're going to play. And if not, it's, it's the nature of the nature of the beast in the business. So, uh, you know, just be ready for it when you go in next year. I think about the time I first watched you play, uh, back in 15 years old, you were playing, uh, summer leagues in the South shore and just basically kicking around every rink possible. Big rink rat, big rink rat. Uh, (laughs) how much has the hockey landscape changed for you, you know, growing in minor hockey and prep at Belmont Hill uh, since when you were developing to now? Uh, I think it changes a lot, really and truly. I think uh, Shattuck came in and put the full season model in at the school, which is something that wasn't going on in the Northeast. Um, and then you have the academies that have come in with, you know, Mount, South Kent, BK, BHA. They've got the academies where the kids are going to school, uh, you know, physical brick-and-mortar school. So it's a little bit different. Also... Uh, at, at the time when I, when I was coming through, you know, it had kind of changed in Massachusetts from the Catholic publics into kids are going to prep school. I think Keith Kachuk was really the last kid that, uh, went fully all the way through at MC. Um, you know, but from, from that point on, if the, the kids came in, they were playing a prep school. And at that point it was, you wanted to play in the ISL or, or Cushing or Avon were really the, the spots that you wanted to be. And, uh, you know, there was no national team at that point. It was basically you'd have a uh, – you'd get like a mass festival, what's going on right now with the kids, and you'd get notified and you'd go out to Colorado Springs for a tryout out there. So it was a little bit different. And then from that was usually – I think it was the end of June. And then you'd if you made the team, you'd go to uh, Lake Placid in August and have a series against the Russians and all that kind of stuff. But, so, but everything's changed since back then, Kurt. It's dramatically. So, something yeah. we talked about, like – the training now, it seems like an arms race with uh, parents and players uh, pushing to claw ahead of each other. How much did you train back then? I mean, clearly not as much now, but, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, as you can see, I uh, train a ton now. It's, uh, <laughs> Living in the gym. <laughs> Living in the gym, yep. Yeah, there's uh, eat shakes, all, all this good stuff. Uh, it, it was different then. I don't think the, there was as much ice available, but the, the, you could still skate. I know... I don't know if I was, you know, different or or whatever. I know I was definitely I definitely put in time. I shot a ton of pucks. I begged my father to build me a stride board with uh, you know, 1980 Olympics. I still remember seeing Hayden, Eric Hayden, you know, do the stride board and do lunge walks and you know, duck walks and all that kind of stuff and I was fascinated by it. So, you know, it's it, it I did I think I did a ton for the time of what was going on. You know, I did from the time I was little until I went to college, I did a thousand strides on the stride board every day. I shot a thousand pucks. You know, I stick handled for, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes every day. And that's, that's not BS. I really did it. I was, uh, all I really and truly wanted to do was play. Um, you know, the same Olympics I saw Hayden doing plyometrics on the, on the, uh, it was the pole vault mat. I don't know if you guys remember that. And he yeah. would have a leg up and it would be like a split squat jump and all that. And I did that and I had a bed and broke the frame. And then I, broke the the box spring and I ended up having just a mattress on the floor for a long time because my parents wouldn't get me a new bed but it was you know I was that's really all I wanted to do was play like there's no 
that's not BS. Like that was all I thought about. It's really all I think about now is still hockey. It's kind of drives some people nuts, but it's um, for me. It was it was on my mind all the time, and that's what I wanted to do. Fascinating that you are referencing the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, and you didn't say Aruzioni, you didn't say Pavlich, you didn't say uh, Silk. You're talking about Eric Hyden, the the speed skater, the gold medalist. You know, speed yeah, I was skater. I was fascinated by. Uh, as a kid, I mean, I was born in 72, so I was, you know, seven, eight years old. And I remember just watching it and being fascinated with all the off-ice stuff that he had done. Because I was, you know, I'd heard the stories about what the Russians were doing and how they trained off the ice. And um, what's the Russian guy, the the father of Russian hockey? Um, Tarasov. Tarasov. You know, I had that book and I read it and, you know, I probably wasn't reading the school books, but I was reading about Tarasov and what he had the kids doing and how his gymnastics on the ice and... All that kind of stuff always clicked in my head, and I just was, you know, fascinated by it. And I remember seeing the stuff with Hayden, and just thinking if if he could skate like that, and his, I, just being amazed at how huge his quads were, and thinking tree trunks, it just yeah. massive. And uh, I remember just being amazed by it. And the, the the players at the time, obviously on that team, were why I played hockey and why it, you know, really wanted something and thought it was a you know an attainable goal because those guys were somebody that you could look up to and they had played in college and they were going on and they'd beat the Russians and all that kind of stuff. But it was really Hayden was the, like the training that I was just fascinated by with what he did. Yeah. Really, really interesting perspective. And it gets back to skating is the foundation of the game. Right. And if you, and back then, I mean, you didn't have a lot of elite skaters like you do now. And I think you touched on it. You said it, said it well. And that is ice was not as available back then. Right. So when, I mean, I'm also a 1972 born guy. uh, And uh, I remember the shooters were better because the guys were like you. They were just hammering pucks all off season. Yeah. Um, but the skating, I mean, you had a definite pecking order when you went into the rinks. You had a, a small percentage of elite skaters, and then you had a, a larger group of pretty good good skaters, I will say. And But then you had a pretty sizable portion of below average to poor skaters. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the biggest paradigm shifts you know, of, of modern hockey and, and the kids that are playing now because the ice is so accessible. And they're well, yeah, and, the, and, they, and then the equipment's so much uh, lighter. Oh, yeah. uh, the right. training's so much better. There's more hockey opportunity now than it was back then. We were just talking about your old teammate, David Heimovitz, who yep. I scouted back when I was with St. Louis. And, you know, I'll shout out Heimo. He was a really, really good player who nowadays would a 32 team oh, yeah. league he would have played 500 games right. Heimo was really so, good it's very different um, back then it's entirely different i don't know if people understand it just you know adding a couple teams how many more opportunities there are and you know Heimo honestly he was really smart good skater great in space you know great first touch and put up big big numbers in the minors and it still baffles me that he didn't get a game i honestly i can't no, it's i talk to people great. about it all the time and you know just at Nationals, you had people say you had no idea that Jaime was a scout with the Islanders and this and that. And I was like, oh, he was a player. He was a real player. And they, they have no idea. And they say he, he was he was the man on a lot of teams in the minors. And just, you know, it just is a, it was a different time then, obviously, with the amount of teams and the way contracts were structured and what you could do with movement. But if it was today in a 32-team league, there's no doubt that he would play and he would be a name that people would know because he was smart and, and could really, really pass. How, uh, how did you end up at Boston College? Um, so this, this is the truth. I, I wanted to go to BU my whole life. I, uh, all I wanted to do was go to BU my, after my junior year at, uh, at Belmont Hill, I had an opportunity that I could have, uh, accelerated academically. 
and gone into school right right away to uh, a couple different schools. And the reason I went back to Belmont Hill for my senior year was that BU couldn't take me. They didn't have any money. So I went I went back, played senior year, had a great experience. It was I was fortunate enough. It was on a World Juniors and all that kind of stuff. But uh, when I went and took my visits, uh, I had great <laughs> visits everywhere. I went to uh, Maine, Wisconsin. We don't Michigan. need to go over the details. Of no, no, it was just they were great yeah. visits. They were they were a blast. I actually think that's one of the things that's interesting with the kids now when they commit that they don't take the visits to school to yeah. see what it's really like. So I went to uh, went to my visit to BU. It was the last visit. Um, the third goalie on the team was a kid named Joey Labosco, who I'd played with at Belmont Hill. And uh, the Friday night game, BU lost, and Coach Parker locked the locked the boys in for the weekend. So I spent my BU recruiting trip at MIT, and uh, it just didn't didn't go the way it was. Well, that's a non-starter right there. Yeah, it was a little bit different. Um, it was still a fun visit, but it was just a little bit different. I was on the other side of the river, and. Um, so when it came down to deciding, this is what it actually came, what mattered to me and what I saw was my goal all along, as I said, was I wanted to play. Uh, I'd already been drafted, and my goal was to turn pro when I was 20, and I had figured out that, um, I don't remember what the days were, but say that Belmont Hill graduated on June 1st, I'd figured out that BC's night school spring semester ended uh, a week later. So I was going to Belmont Hill during the day, and I was going to BC night school and then I overloaded that summer. So when I was a freshman athletically, I was a sophomore academically. And I just kind of accelerated the whole way. And it certainly wasn't because I was smart and all that. It was because I was motivated and I wanted to play. And, you know, uh, Lenny and Cedar told me I needed to have a 2-6 to be eligible. So I got a 2-6 and that was it. And I just overloaded and did as many, many classes as I could. Uh, public speaking, communications was my major. Not afraid to. Oh <laughs> no! No, public, it public speaking. Is public not speaking. A, uh, wasn't afraid Boy. to talk. And, uh, <laughs> so I did as many classes as I could, where I had to get up and do presentations because I wasn't afraid of it. And I had good advice from my father. He always said, "Go first day, first guy, or first person," because then nobody's paying attention in there. They're all worried what you're doing. I would do it, get it out of the way, and then the next three weeks of all the other kids doing their. Uh, their presentations, I would just sit back and do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, who, who were some of the characters you had back then on that team? I remember watching that team. Uh, at BC? Yeah, at BC. So we had, at that point, there was a 92 and a 94 Olympic team. Remember, they kind of, they right. uh, made it every other there for, for that one year. So we lost, like, Teddy Crowley had turned pro. Billy Guerin had turned pro. Marty McGinnis had left. Stevie Hines had left. All, you know, that whole Emma had left. He had graduated. But you had played with all of those guys, right? I had known them all. That, you know, I think it's probably the same way now. Like, you knew everybody in Boston. You said we, yeah. I played in that summer league, and yeah. that was all the all the pros, yeah. and all the college guys were playing in that. And so you, you knew all those guys. Um you know, the year ahead of me was John Joyce, who's also involved with the Eagles, and, right. and Jackie Callahan and Mike Spala was a Minnesota kid that came east. So th that was the class ahead of me, and then my class was was a big class. Uh, Ryan Haggerty and Todd Hall uh, probably had the best careers after BC. Um, Todd Hall ended up transferring to UNH actually after his sophomore year, and then he played forever in uh, in the American League in Hartford. And yep. Ryan played in Cape Breton in. Uh, in Edmonton, with Edmonton's minor league team, and he played it. I don't know how many years he played, but he ended up breaking his breaking his th uh, pinky and having it set weirdly, and uh, had to have surgery. But that kind of ended it. But Ryan Ryan was a heck of a player. Um, he was kind of like Glenn Anderson. I always remember thinking that. But it was, uh, you know, it was my couple years at BC 
we uh, our record wasn't particularly good. I think my freshman year we were 500. My sophomore year we didn't do very well. Scotty Legrand had uh, turned pro right before the season started, and if, if Scotty had stuck around, I think we probably did, would have done pretty well. But uh, sophomore year the record wasn't very good. All I can tell you is that we swept BU, which was which was pretty good. And then uh, imagine the lock lockdowns that <laughs> happened after that, right? Yeah, I mean, just imagine. And well, they, all, uh, they all went to MIT. They must have. Yeah, <laughs> yep, that, that was it. So uh, yeah, it was it was a great group. I still talk to the majority of the guys that, were, that I played with and see them all over. It's amazing how many kids or how many guys my age have kids that are playing, whether they played at BC, BU, Northeastern, Harvard. You see all the all the guys around, and it's always it's always fun to go to the rink that way. What about the coaching you got there? I mean, you you played for a long time, coach, and you know. Uh, yeah, Lenny. It was at that point there there wasn't certainly wasn't the structure they have now. Or you know, some of the schools have. We just said earlier about Northeastern with the one three one, or you know, the teams jamming up the neutral zone with Lenny. It was really play with high pace, try to make plays. Uh, you you definitely weren't encouraged to dump it in. Truthfully, I know I know at Belmont Hill. We never dumped it in, and we weren't allowed to. And I don't really remember dumping it in at BC. I remember when I got to the pros, the glass became a real friend. But, um, you know, it was just make plays, play fast. Uh, Defensively, it was just provide support. There was no – we didn't talk man-on-man or zones. It was just you're going to take care of your area and provide support. And when you get the puck, it was a quick outlet, and then everybody went. And that was was how we played. and then we had Cedar for the sec- my sophomore year, which was Steve Cedar Chuck was which was essentially the same type of play, uh, you know, quick transition and go. You mentioned earlier that you had already been drafted yeah. by the time you got to BC, but I'm, you know, I've been attending the drafts since 2000, Calgary. Yeah. Um, I've missed a few here and there because I was overseas, but for the most part, been to just about every one of them, and that they allowed us. I mean, the last couple of years yeah. we haven't. I'm looking forward to Montreal, but when you were drafted. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have the internet. No. Um, I want to know how did Ian Moran find out? You know what were you doing? Like take take yourself back to you know spring of nineteen ninety. Yep. You and I both were were seniors in, <laughs> in in high school, I guess. And and uh, so, um, but how did it happen? How did it go down? And 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 we'll peel back the onion because I think a lot of people are interested in the draft, especially you know back then because it was you know probably telephone calls with the with the with the dial you know the, the push button phones yep. or the maybe you had one of those uh cordless no, phones that we you had would, a kitchen with a cord <laughs> kitchen with a cord okay <laughs> yeah. so and yeah. i think the young players are like what are they talking about oh no idea yeah <laughs> yeah uh so the draft was definitely definitely different my year was in uh vancouver uh didn't go to the draft um at that point i think only like first rounders really went to the draft uh if even that um my parents happened to be away for the weekend. They were at my younger sister's soccer tournament. I have no idea where they were. Uh, they weren't tracking it on Twitter? They weren't tracking it on Twitter. And <laughs> the night of the draft, I was actually out with uh, buddies in Arlington, and uh, they kept calling the Globe or the Herald to find out the order of the draft and who was going. And I remember we were in a buddy's backyard, and they came back and uh, somebody yelled, you know, it was the Penguins and that was it. And I didn't, wasn't waiting by the phone for a phone call or anything like that. And ended up, uh, I think it was on Monday. I got a phone call from Craig Patrick and he was a GM in Pittsburgh at the time. And he said something along the lines of where you been or what was going on why weren't you waiting by the phone? And I just said, <laughs> I figured I'd get drafted and 
you'd get hold of me at some point, and he said, you're the only kid we've ever drafted that wasn't just waiting by the phone. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> so, I, I, w- I would have remind of, of a moment that the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, <laughs> select in the first round Yaramir Yager. Yep. You were Same part draft. of the Yaramir yeah. Yager yeah. class. Yep. Uh, I mean, I, I imagine, I mean, you know, he had already been, you know, he came right in and helped them win the first of two straight yeah. Stanley Cups. But, um, I mean, when you, when you look back on it, okay, so you, you weren't waiting by the phone, um, but had you had conversations with, with Pittsburgh? No, never talked to Pittsburgh ever. I had talked to the Rangers. I had talked to, uh, David, Mc, is David McNabb, right? David. Yeah. I had talked David. to David McNabb quite, quite a bit. Um, I had been measured literally standing on the wall a couple of times by, uh, by the Red Wings. Uh, I, I had talked to probably five or six teams, the Rangers, the most out of them and, uh, never had talked to the Penguins. Totally different back then. Yeah. There was no interviewing. There was no, uh, yeah. you know, combine like, no, the, there was nothing like nothing. I remember getting measured in, uh, in the Quincy rink against the wall. Uh, by Detroit, and I measured out at six feet, and I had, I had socks on, and they didn't believe me. They thought I had lifts under my in my heels and my socks, so I had to take my socks off and go barefoot. And I measured out at six feet again. They still wouldn't put it in that I was six, so they put it at five eleven and a half. Wow. And uh, but yeah, that was that was it. It was, it was different. Um, a little size obsessed yeah, back then. No, definitely a little bit different now. Now I'd my size would be totally fine, especially if I was a little bit thinner than I am now. But. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like our, our draft was a, was actually a really good draft for considering at the time we had Yags, who's you know everybody knows him, and second rounder the Penguins didn't have one. They had traded it for Joey Mullen, and they, you know that actually worked out for them to win win rings. And then third round was Joey Dedzik, who was uh, Mister Minnesota Hockey yeah, at the time, was, and yeah. he got games. And then it was Chris Tamer who played a long time. Brian Farrell played at Harvard, and he got a couple of games. Uh, and then I think it was me. And then Pat Neaton, who got games, and I think I think that was it. And what were you, six rounds? I was six round yeah. at that point, yeah. so I was like 104 or something, yeah. 105, somewhere in there. What's interesting about the Penguins is they had, you know, for a long time, you know, they got the, the first overall pick in Mario in, in 84, and then they didn't make the playoffs until 89. And when yeah. they did, they did very, they did well, you know, and he, he had a, but they took a step back yeah. in, in 90, and they didn't even make the playoffs, and they took Yager fifth overall. And... You know, people might have been saying, "Oh, they, you know, they're going the wrong way." But within a year, they 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 win two straight, and it just oh, goes yeah. to show you. And you talked about Joey Mullen, you know, yeah. giving up that pick for for Joey Mullen. How how important, uh, oh, yeah. you know, that that move was, and Craig Patrick getting Tommy Barrasso. You yeah. know, he, he, he looked. I thought he looked awful in nineteen ninety. Yeah. Um, you know that he looked like he was going the wrong way. And then he turned it around. You know, just what was uh, what was Tom Barrasso like when you played with him? He's, I loved him. He's a character. I mean, I honestly, yeah. I loved him. He was great with me. Uh, his father owned Aspen Valley Rink, so uh, Mr. Barrasso, we knew him, and he was always great. He would let at that rink. You know, there's a double sheet, and then there was a small sheet in back at that point. And if uh, if nobody was on the ice, he'd let you. You'd be able to get on the ice and skate on dirty ice and play pickup on dirty ice. And I think you know. Mr. Brasso allowing the guys in Acton Boxborough to skate like that. I think that's one of the reasons why there were so many players that came out of that area because we were able to get on the ice. Um, but as far as Tommy, Tommy to me was great. He was, if you put the team first and played the way you were supposed to play, Tommy had all the time in the world for you, really and truly. He was great. He he didn't care about the media. He didn't care his perception in the media. He, uh, he was about... I'm not going to say he was about himself, but he was a goalie in that way. But he was about the team. And if you, literally, if you put the team first, he was great. 
he did he got bashed by the media and i always thought it was unfair because they would say that he was just you know a dink or whatever but he he would set up trips to the children's hospital in pittsburgh go unannounced he would bring the young guys with him he would pay for all the paraphernalia the guys to have the team sign it all that kind of stuff and he'd go through and you'd go you'd go through the children's unit and there'd be all these kids that were sick and he'd you know the same media that are bashing him if he if he knew or they knew that he was going through these hospitals and he knew the kids' names, he knew the parents' names, he knew what was going on, he knew their treatments, he knew everything about them, uh, you know, it would be unbelievable. But the perception was because he, he wasn't friendly and didn't like to do interviews that he was just a you know, mean guy. And it wasn't the case at all. He was, he was team first. Um, he, he could be ornery, but everybody can be ornery. But it was, it was all, if you put the team first, he was great. And he was, for me personally, as a young kid, uh, he, he was great. And, you know, Tyler Wright was with me at that time. We were roommates in uh, Marcus and Asland, and I can remember Tommy setting up, you know, trips and setting up the car rides for us so we didn't have to drive, and we'd go and you'd get to the hospital, and they'd have all this stuff out for, you know, to give to the kids, and you'd go through, and he, he did it, didn't do it for any pat on the back. He did it because he thought it meant something to the family and the kids, and I think it's a shame that people never actually really knew that. And that's character, right, because, you know, if he if he if – he, didn't if he lacked character, he yeah. would make sure the media knew he did that. You know, he would yeah. he would say, "Well, look at what I, you know, look at me, look at what I've done." And the fact that he didn't really says, and and again, and I said, I said I thought he looked awful. That was in the nineteen ninety season. He really became, you know, an anchor and a, and like they don't win those Stanley Cups oh, without no. Tom Barrasso, and he no. went on to have a, an unbelievable career. And we have to remember, like. He made the NHL at 18. Oh, it's crazy. And he not only did that, but he wins the Vezina Trophy yeah. as an 18-year-old. Straight and out of like, AV. You know, yeah. I mean, he might as well. I remember seeing photos of him in his tuxedo at the, at the awards, and, and he looked like he was right out of high school. Yeah. He was. Yeah, he was, he was great. And all, really and truly, like, he, he cared about winning, and he cared about putting the team first. And he, he really didn't care if you were outside the locker room. And I know that sounds weird and whatever, but he wasn't there to uh, – to make friends, he was there to win, and he did. He was he was a damn good goalie. He, uh, I think, one year I don't know. You'd have to check it out on Elite Prospects, but I think he had six or seven assists one year. And he used to go back, and uh, you know, the puck would get dumped in. He'd pick it up off the wall as cleanly as any winger, and he'd hit Mario Yags or whoever on a stretch pass right up right up the gut and shorthanded. If if the other team dumped it in, he got it and it was gone. He I, was he was phenomenal. I believe he's the all time assist leader in Probably the has NH- more points in NHL me. history. <laughs> yeah, I, I, for a goalie, yeah. uh, and I know he and Grant Fuhrer were yeah. the two goalies that were most known for that. New England Hockey Journal's Rinkwise Podcast will return after this message. Do you want to skate fast? For 50 years, Laura Stam instructors have taught youth players to pros how to skate correctly, powerfully, and fast. Players who attend Laura Stam power skating programs learn how to skate fast by learning how to execute every maneuver in hockey. They become powerful, stable, efficient, and explosively fast skaters. If you can't wait for a clinic, join our subscription skills video service and we'll show you the skills taught at our clinics in an easy-to-use video format with training plans to guide your training. Register or subscribe now at laurastam.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-S-T-A-M-M dot Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. 
UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Develop your game with Lovell Hockey this summer. Whether you're a youth player or pro, Lovell Hockey has summer clinics, leagues, and college combines that are right for you. Go to LovellHockey.com today to sign up for July and August programs. Availability is limited, so register before they sell out. But one of the things I am thinking about your career, because I watched you in high school and college, you know, you, you got a lot of points back then. Um, I thought you were a good two-way defenseman. What did you do when you turned pro to adapt to finding a spot on a team? Like, I think what a lot of kids who hopefully are listening don't realize is that when you get to the upper level, sometimes what you were back in college is not what you're going to be oh, no. at pro. So how did you figure that out? Uh, so I, I turned pro as an offensive D-man. Had always been an offensive guy uh, in the minors. Was an offensive D-man for. I was in Cleveland for about a year and a half, um, and that's that's how I thought I was. I would make it at that. You know, at that point, an undersized D-man, you had to be able to skate, and I thought you had to be able to make plays. Uh, you know, like my heroes were Brian Leach and you know Paul Coffey or Bork, and that's what I thought. You know, somebody roughly my size would would be able to play like, and. Uh, I can I can tell you the first shift I had I was on the power play and it was me Lemieux Yager Larry Murphy and Ronnie Francis and I was on the power play and I can remember sitting thinking at the face off holy crap I need to figure something else out or I won't be here long and uh, my first games were in the playoffs and uh, I literally went home and even though I just said those guys were my heroes I loved Big Al Peterson with the Bruins because all he did was block shots and he he just would lay down and sacrifice his body to block shots and uh, I literally went home that summer. Uh, it was the summer going into the 95-96 season. And in summer league, that same league, I taught myself how to how to be in shooting lanes and block shots and and basically get big low to eat them. And, um, so you figured out a way to, you know, find a job on a team. Yeah. Playing the right way that was able to fit fit your team. Yeah, the, peng- the Penguins, you know, I was because I was an offensive guy, I was a good passer, and I could uh, – Basically, really and truly, when I look back at it, like from offensive blue line to you know our end below the goal line, I could I could make any pass. I could pick it off the wall. I could find the middle. I could find the weak guy, strong side, put it on the tape, put it into space, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what happened when I got to the NHL was uh, that space that I could create in the other two zones. Uh, it wasn't there in the offensive zone, so I'd get the puck. I was smart enough to realize I need to hit the net or get it behind the net and not do a wrap to start another breakout for for the other team. So the uh, you know a lot of time a lot of the time in Pittsburgh as a D man I was playing with Yags's line or I was playing with Mario because I could pass and they knew in the offensive zone that if I got it I wasn't going to do something stupid I wasn't going to fire it off shin pads I wasn't you know if you if you really want to be a defenseman in, in the NHL and you fire a couple off the shin pads and they get out of the zone you're you're done you'll get probably one warning and then that's it so I was smart enough to figure out that if I got the puck and I couldn't hit the net I had to make sure it ended up behind the net you know the offensive net so that our guys could get back pick it up off the wall protect it Yags wanted it like that and then that was it and that's how it worked um you know I think what people don't understand is they'll watch NHL 
you know, whoever it may be, and you'll see somebody on the third and fourth line, and I have people say it to me, like, ah, he's brutal, blah, 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 he stinks. And I'm like, you know, that, that guy is better than anyone you've ever been on the ice with. At wherever he just played, he was the best guy on that team, right? He, there's probably, there could be guys that are more skilled that are playing in the minors. There's definitely guys that are more skilled playing over in Europe. But what the NHL is trying to do, they're trying to win, and you need to figure out how you can help the team win. I guess it goes back to what I was saying about our U18 team and every coach they're going to have. If you can help a team win, you're going to play. Um, but truthfully, any, anybody that's in the NHL, you, you're, you were the best player on the team that you just played on. Wherever you got there, and then you were smart enough to figure out, all right, well, the superstars, you know, it, it's hard to even put into, into words. Like the, the guys that are the best in the NHL, they're, they're so much better and smarter than everybody else. I mean, it's just they process things just differently. And the rest of the guys there are smarter than everybody else in the world. There's no doubt about it. And there's guys that come up and they can be good for 10 games and then, then they're gone. And it's, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it's easy to be good for those 10 games, but it's you're on a high, you're charged, you're ready to go. And can you do it consistently? Um, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of it. You have to figure out a way to stay there. And, you know, it's once you, once you get your role and you know your role, they're, they're, truthfully, they're trying to replace you. I mean, you, you know, you know, I've, I figured out what my role was in Pittsburgh, and every year I'd look at the draft and I'd say, oh, these are the two D-men they drafted that are coming to take my job, and they want my job, and then that would, I would have to be better than them. You know, I wasn't trying to be better than somebody running the power play. I was trying to be re- better than somebody that was going to make good outlet passes, defend well, and not spend any time in our zone. Well, it, it goes to if a player's moving up to junior or they're moving up to college or they're moving up to pro unless you're like an elite elite talent uh the player needs to adjust to the team yeah not the team adjusting to the player no like when one player gets to a uh, a location they're not going to change their style for him uh and what you did is you were able to look around and see yager lemieux Artie, big Artie, oh, yeah. uh kevin stevens and the skill there and you were able to figure out your role and and stay yeah. uh, longer than most. There, there, are, there are definitely guys that are playing in the American League that are more skilled than guys that are playing in the NHL. There's no, no doubt about it. But uh, they don't know how to play. And you said a little bit earlier that skating is the base. And it, it is. Like you have to – I've said this, like people say you have to be able to skate to play. Well, I think you have to be able to skate and it's going to get you to a certain point. You can play youth hockey if you can skate, but it gets to a certain point to be in the NHL. It's your brain. Your brain is what allows you to, to stay there. And, uh, there's other things I've said that, you know, like you, you can have a career and it goes like this, right? You always want to be getting better and better and better, but you can't have this. Here's two names that taught me how to be a pro Stevie Leach and Craig Muni and, you know, Craig Muni, no one even knows Muni. I think he's got seven rings as a player yeah, and another three yeah. as a scout. Uh, you know, what they taught me was everybody is going like this, good and bad, right? Which is fine. You want to keep going like this as you're playing. But you can't be going like this and then fall and then build it back up and then fall because that fall, there's too big a gap. So the guys that are that really play and it lasts, Steady. Their, their bad is, is still very, very good. Yeah. So you, your bad has to be very, very good for you to – to stick around, you can't have these games where you're, you know, playing top th- top 
four minutes or top nine minutes, and all of a sudden you fall off and the coach can't put you on the ice. You have to be trustworthy. You have They have to know they can trust you, and they have to know that when you don't feel well and you feel crappy and you've got a Charlie horse or your foot is killing you, that your bad is only going to go down about this much. And, and that's something that we've talked a lot about off-air, about how you play without the puck. It's not what you do with the puck. It's oh, yeah. what you do without the puck and gaining that coach's trust. And yeah. I think one of your big things that you're – you don't like as the over dangling. Guys you know? bananas. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what are your thoughts on that in terms of playing the right way? I think there's there's a, you know, the, one of the things with the kids being on the ice all the time and doing the skills is that they're, they're really, really good at, at stick handling and moving away from the puck is, is more than just moving to receive a pass. Sometimes you're, you're moving to create a better passing angle or a passing seam for your teammates, for your line mates, so they have more time when they receive the pass. You know, and that's when you see the guys and you'll hear comments like, oh, that guy has no idea how to play without the puck. It's that, you know, you're not just skating somewhere to receive a pass or to beat somebody one-on-one. Like, you're you're recognizing you know, I'm, the, I'm the left wing and our left defenseman has clean possession. I'm going to take off and fly now because he's got clean possession. And you have, you know, some guys that are coaching youth hockey be like, oh, you're left wing. You need to stay stapled to the boards. Well, you don't. You have to move. Right, you know, and it's, speed through the tr- through yeah. the neutral zone, and you make their defenseman respect you. You right. know, and if you're the left wing and you take off, and your left defenseman has clean possession, they go D to D, and you're pushing the pace. If their D don't respect you, you've got a breakaway. If he does respect you, he goes D to D to the middle, and he's got all day to go left to right and do whatever he wants with it. And uh, I just thought it was interesting that Callahan said it last night. I think it's, you know, I don't know if people pay attention to it because everyone, you know. Left wing, your your defenseman gets an easy be stapled to the boards. Well, he doesn't. If he's in clean possession, you can go. If there's 50-50 puck, you wait for it. And, you know, if they have possession of it, then you have to wait and you have to be in defensive positioning. But that's all it's, playing it's just, without the it, puck. It, but it, it, yeah, but it also gets the point of, like, it's not about the external gratification of scoring points. And just because a kid gets a point or two in a game doesn't mean he played great. No, right. definitely not. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there was uh, – it was a ridiculous one of my stories in the minors. Uh, we were playing Fort Wayne. We lost three to two. I scored both our goals, which were awesome, right? You know, scored both. There are three goals. I uh, tipped one off my stick, tipped one off my shin pad, and one was a D zone faceoff that I was supposed to hard wrap it to our wing that was taken off, and I buried a, buried a slapper or a short side. So we lost three to two. <laughs> mm. Colin Chin and uh, yep. John Purvis gave me a high five after I scored. That was the game winner, you know, yeah. but two goals. Oh, it looks great, but I <laughs> ripped three in our net. Right, you know, so it's uh, there's more to it than just the points. Well, and that's 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 the thing. Now, I'm, I'm looking back in your career. You played in a fascinating time because you came in at the end of the you know what was considered fire wagon hockey, where it was wide open, yep. and then the you know the goalies got better, the equipment got bigger, maybe, yep. and we had the dead puck era. Yeah, you know, first of all, for people that may may have heard the term dead puck era, you know, dead puck, but they don't know what it is. What was that, and how did you have to adjust your game at all to play when things ended up going that route and scoring became a lot lower in the NHL? Um, the biggest difference was you you had to train and you had to lift to be strong. Um, I ended up playing at about 215, 220, even though uh, short and stocky and thick and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think if I was playing now, I'd probably be about 190, 195. And I think at that point, uh, it had gone from, you said, fire wagon hockey. You know, you, you could look back and you could see like Gretzky or Mario or Howard Chuck, any of the, any of the guys prior to the clutch and grab, you know, you'd have like Esatikinen would line up and they would just stay with him the whole time. And, you know, if you were, if Tekatikinen was playing against Mario, he'd just go stand at the far blue line and turn it into four and four hockey. And it was a lot more man to man at that point than zone. 
and zone coverage defensively. So you would literally get on the ice and have a 40-second shift where you would clutch and grab and grab jerseys and pull sticks and pull pants and wrestle, you know, and really tug and pull and pull. Um, you know, if you watch some of the highlights of what Mario and Yager went through to score goals, I mean, they got mugged. Like, there'd be yeah. suspensions for what was going on to them. And that was just a normal shift. Um, that changed in the 2000s. They opened yeah, as soon it up. as the lockout yeah. in 04, that yeah. all changed. Yeah, it was great. The game up. got faster, and yeah. it was, it's, you know, it, it's an entirely different thing. But there was so much clutching and grabbing. You had to be big. You had to be strong. You had to, even no matter what era you're playing in, you have to be competitive, but you had to be combative. You had to know that, you know, every whistle there was going to be a scrum, and you were going to get. I remember when I was a kid growing up, you had leather gloves. Everyone had leather gloves because it was great. And then I got to the minors, and I was wearing leather gloves, and all of a sudden I got a fist across my face and my burns all over my face, and it was you wanted cloth gloves because then when you gave somebody a rub out, you'd give them a burn on their face but, and yeah, just but more, you know, ridiculous more, stuff. Yeah, more importantly, I, I think everyone should Google Ian Moran Pittsburgh Penguins because there's going to be a great picture of you with frosted tips oh, I hair. Had a lot of hair. I had a lot of hair issues. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you doing with your hair back then? I mean, this is really important. Um. So my hair, I had, uh, I have no idea why I bleached it, but I, I didn't at first just do tips. It was, uh, my wife went away for a weekend and I bleached it outright white. There was no tip, there were no roots, it was just white. And, uh, and then I kept that for, for a while, and then I had some tips, and then I had, uh, I had a mohawk for a long, long time. I remember that, I had, yeah. I had a long yeah, mohawk that hair. was chipped out, and I had a tight little mohawk, yeah. it was, uh, yeah, I had some hair issues. Well, well some of the character, the, well, some of that bleeds into the whole characters back then. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys we've talked about is Casparitis. Oh yeah, what was he like? Hysterical. He was just a ball of energy all the time, uh, always laughing. Uh, you know, always always looking for a good time. He was fun on the ice. He was a heck of a teammate. You know, ultra competitive. Would do it every every could to win. He's a he's a guy who. Uh, you know, like Barrasso, you talk about team first. He's he's a guy team first would sacrifice anything to uh, to win. Um, off the ice, he was just a ball of energy. He was always uh, always funny, always in a good mood, always looking for you know to do something. A lot of times, it was Casper uh, roomed with Kevin Hatcher, and we'd have connecting rooms. And I was either with Barnaby or uh, Tyler Wright at that point, and uh, we'd have connecting rooms. And he was part of the dinner crew and all that kind of stuff. He was just. You know, he he was exactly. You know, he, he just did an interview uh, on Chicklets, and my phone blew up about. Do I know this guy? I was like, yeah, we were teammates for three, four years, and we were partners for three years. I like, you know he's he's out of his mind, hysterical, uh, literally a ball of energy, no matter what. Could you imagine him in the social media era? No, it would definitely not. He uh, <laughs> blowing up the uh, internet. Yeah, he would be something else. Yeah. yeah. How was he and Barnaby on the same team? Very similar. Barney was Barney's hysterical. They were all. Uh, th- the uh, the persona the guys had on the ice, you know, like Barney was a show and all that. That's how he was off the ice. It was, it was that really was his personality. It wasn't, you know, what he was doing and getting in a fight and laughing or making faces at the camera and all that. He he understood that it was entertainment and he was uh, he was an entertainer. He was a he was a damn good hockey player. He was smart. At that point, he was fighting the big guys and he probably weighed one hundred eighty five, one hundred ninety pounds, and he didn't he didn't have much meat on him, and he would. He would go with anybody, and he was tough. And he was—he was another kid that was a another player, friend, whatever. That was a—that was a heck of a teammate that put the team first. But he—he uh, he understood the entertainment aspect of it all. What did—what did it mean for you to come home playing for the Bruins? 
Uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, it, I honestly thought at that point that I would be in Pittsburgh for my whole career. We had, uh, in Pittsburgh, we ended up being there long enough that went through three team uh, bankruptcies. And it, that the year I got traded, we were in first place at the uh, at the Christmas party. And I, um, I remember Craig Patrick at the party called everybody back into a, into a private room and said uh, there were financial issues happening again. And if uh, any of us had any value, we would be uh, we'd be gone by the deadline. And uh, that was literally at the Christmas party. And the next day, we traded five guys off our roster for five guys that were playing in the Rangers minor league team. Oh, wow. And we just started Jeez. the started the plummet then, uh, which allowed them to draft Flurry and all that. It was, you know. And then on that day, uh, deadline day, I remember we were on the ice and. Uh, Every once in a while, it was either uh, Stevie Latin, who was the equipment guy, or one of the medical guys would come to the door and open it up, and he'd yell out a name. You know, and we'd all give him a stick tap. You know, I remember Wayne Primo getting dealt, and Bergman got dealt that day, Andy Ferris got dealt that day. I got dealt. We all we all got traded. Um, I actually didn't though. I I got traded that day, but not on the ice, and I left. And uh, I remember hearing that there was that there was uh, something about going to St. Louis. Whether it was going to happen or not, who knew? And I went home, and uh, you know, at that point, our uh, Maddie, our oldest daughter, she was probably three or four, and I was out in the driveway playing uh, hopscotch with her, and I got a call from Craig Patrick, and I honestly thought he, Craig was calling to tell me to go to the airport to pick somebody up, and he said uh, we had some offers, we weren't going to do it. The Bruins called right before it was over, and we think they have a real chance to win it, so we're sending you home. And I was that just, was nice I was kind of, it was great. I was. Uh, I was devastated. I ended up writing Mike O'Connell's uh, phone number in chalk in our driveway and uh, called OC and um, was on a plane that night and flew in. And then first game was against uh, was against Jersey, which was actually great because Pittsburgh and Jersey had played so much through the time that I was there and in the playoffs. And I, I kind of knew what they were going to do and went into the locker room in Boston. It was a great room. It was Danny McGillis and I were the the deadline acquisitions that year by the Bruins, and we went in, and um, it was a great room. It was uh, it just didn't work out that year, but it was, I was really fortunate. Well, you had, you had Thornton there. You had a Canoeable, Glenn Murray, Ralston, Marty Lapointe, uh, Hal Gill, Nick Boynton. Uh, we, I mean, we had a, we had a really good team. Uh, Joe ended up hurting his ribs, uh, and he played with a broken rib and um, and torn cartilage. In, in his rib, and we we ended up losing. But it was we we had a really good team that won the President's Trophy that year, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And if uh, you know, it's just the way it goes. So yeah, I mean, in addition to those great names you, you mentioned, uh, you also had uh, rookie Patrice Bergeron. So what was it like? What was he like as a rookie? And uh, what's it been like for you to watch him from afar uh, evolve <laughs> into the player he is? So a lot of times that I tell people this week, you would you would go to training camp and you'd see guys that were picks. And you would know right away that this guy doesn't have a chance. You know, just the the puckets, they're sticking, it bounces. It's just whatever it is, you would know right away that this guy's got nothing. And um, truthfully, you do a passing drill area in camp, and you'd watch who couldn't handle a pass on their backhand, and then you'd just make sure they had to go to their backhand, receive a pass there, and you'd jump them every time. And uh, Bergie was a second-round pick, and I remember he got on the ice, and all of us were like, hmm. <laughs> he... Uh, He's gonna be playing. Smart. And then he was smart, and then his camp went on. He just kept getting better and better and better, and he was taking D zone draws, and he knew knew how to stay on the defensive side of the puck. And as a centerman, he swung low and slow, so he received the puck in space. You know, all all the stuff that uh, some people never get, he just knew right away. And I was, you know, honestly talking to Brendan Buckley about 
Bergie yesterday in about how he just does stuff that, you know, did somebody teach him when he was 10? Did he just know how to do it? Is it, you know, because there's guys that you try to coach forever on a D zone draw, this is what you're supposed to do. In neutral zone, you know, transition, this is what you want to do. You don't always want to be skating Mach 10. And uh, and that gets to our point about uh, having the sense to play without the puck. Yeah. To adjust he right knew away. he knew when he came to yeah. camp that first time, and we excellent. we all knew right away. I mean, it wasn't like there was a lag time; it was probably like ten minutes into the first skate, and we're like, well, "Look at this kid!" Yeah. He was wearing fifty six back then. Yep, he was, and he had a mutant coho stick, and it was just awful, you know, and bad <laughs> shin pads, or like over the toes of his skates. But damn, he was good. So after your playing career was over, you you've stayed very active, obviously, with working with players and skills yep. and advising. Um, how have you been enjoying that? So when I first retired, um, I had an opportunity to stay in hockey to do some player development with an NHL team. And, uh, I said no to it because, uh, I had people telling me that I should get out of hockey and do something else because I had gone to Belmont Hill and blah, 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 blah. So I did, uh. I was an institutional equity sales trader for a couple of years. It doesn't I, uh, fit you. Frosted no. tips doesn't work in that industry. Actually, it did. It, but oh, just did it? yeah, yeah. Uh, I was I didn't have it at that point then. And then um, <laughs> you know I did some other stuff. I got in sales. I did all sorts of stuff, and I found that I was absolutely miserable and uh, hated it, and I was was never happy. And then uh, you know I was always trying to get on the ice to do skills with kids, and I thought I could have an impact with them and, and teach them the stuff that actually matters. And um, you know, I'd say five years ago, I made the made the decision with the support of my family that this is what I'm going to do. I want to be in hockey full time. It's what I know. It's I don't view any of it as work. I, I view it as I, I'm lucky that I get to go to the rink or I get to be on the ice or I get to watch games or watch tape, whatever. I think I'm really fortunate that that's what I'm doing. Um, you know, I think if there's there's kids that I'm helping or we're talking to and you know they want to know how to get there, I was fortunate enough and lucky enough and good enough that I worked hard enough that I could pull it off. Um, I also can tell you that your worst day in hockey is going to be better than your best day doing anything else. And when I say that, I mean it because I uh, I did the other stuff for a decade and I hated every second of it. Yeah. Well, you got to love what you do in more in the in life. Yeah, I'm and very lucky. You're very lucky. You're, you are you are in a rink all the time, all day. I've already been on the ice for three hours this morning. Where are, <laughs> now? What about the signature bl- baby blue sweatsuit that uh, everyone sees you in? So when I when you know I retired, I didn't do much in hockey for say eight years, and uh, I had an option of getting a black tracksuit like everybody else wears, or I could get that baby blue one. And I said, "Screw it, I'm getting the baby blue one because people might not know who I am, but they'll know the baby blue." So that that's it. So you see Twitter when there's a kid that I skate with or I know, and I have big blue proud. It has to do with me being a big fat guy in a baby blue tracksuit. <laughs> uh, you have incredible style. Who shows up at the New England Hockey Journal <laughs> podcast wearing Wait, a Minnesota Golden Golden Gophers, Gophers shirt. man? It's Come a great on, hoodie. now. Great I mean, hoodie. Yeah. Especially after they knocked off uh, UMass. I, know, uh, I wasn't thinking. I just put on hoodies. I wear hoodies every day. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you probably have a lot of hoodies. I'm I have a lot guessing. of hoodies. This is a new one. This is actually it was a gift sent. Uh, a BC guy sent me a uh, Minnesota hoodie, there and I'm go. wearing it. Yeah. So thank you, uh, Billy Norcross. There you go, Billy Norcross. Us. <laughs> Cushing Academy, right? So, no, his father. His yeah, father yeah, is an offensive father. lineman at BC while I was BC, there. BC, okay, yeah, there you wow. go. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but what I really found probably so interesting is the way you talked about the importance of a brain. You were thinking back at eight years old, you were looking at Eric Hyden, you were looking at what you needed to do to be a player, and you did it. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway for me in yeah. this podcast was, oh, was thank that. Thank you. So, uh, it's a ton of fun. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. So on behalf of uh, – so for Matt Cater – 
Ian Moran, myself, and Steve Safran. Uh, this is Kirk Ludicky. Thank you for uh, listening. And until next time, we'll see you at the rink. Thanks for listening to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter at NE Hockey Journal, on Instagram and Facebook at New England Hockey Journal, and subscribe to New England Hockey Journal online at hockeyjournal.com. New England Hockey Journal's Rinkwise is a Siemens Media Podcast.